listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. This week we have with us Jake Greenspan, who is the co-founder and co-director of the Floor Time Center in Bethesda, Maryland, and the son of the late great Dr. Stanley Greenspan, the creator of the DIR model, the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, and the Greenspan Floor Time Approach. And we are talking today about Food Time, which is their new evidence-based intensive feeding program for picky and rigid eaters. Welcome back, Jake. Great. Thank you, Daria. Thank you for having me. And then this is great to be back. Yeah, I was really excited when I saw the email from the Floor Time Center about this new um, approach that you have to eating. And I see that it says it's looking at the sensory, oral, motor, and emotional components and so um, why don't you tell us a little bit, like introduce us, what is food time and what separates yeah. it from other feeding approaches that are out there and, and who is yeah. it targeted for? Absolutely. So I'm just turning the volume down. So basically food time is an approach that we kind of identified and the need for and created about three years ago. Um, we have, in our clinic where we at the floor time center where we work with a variety of children, not just children with autism, but children with behavior, learning, social difficulties, and a lot of children who have picky and rigid eating habits, as well as some medically complex feeding issues. Um, and we really saw that there was a, a gap in what was being provided to the kids for feeding programs. There are a lot of behavioral feeding programs out there. And one of the better ones that was non-behavioral, um, was a sensory-based feeding program that some of our staff were interested in taking. And they actually, um, our head speech-language pathologist um, and our head occupational therapist decided they wanted to learn more about some of the reasoning behind and techniques to support picky and rigid eating profiles. And they took the sensory-based um, training for feeding, and they found that, you know, while it was great and it taught them a lot about oral um, sensitivities and and um, and underreactivities and chew and swallow patterns they didn't really know about. They were they identified that the training they'd taken really skipped over one of the most important pieces of mealtime, which is the emotional experience that we all have during mealtime and the relationship we have with the actual experience of mealtime, as well as with the people we're eating with, our parents or caregivers or siblings, etc. And while certainly the behavioral approaches are quite the opposite of what we're discussing, which really almost negates the emotional experience or even creates a negative one at times where I have force feeding kids or just giving rewards and, or, or computer time, which completely disassociates from the emotionality and enjoyment of, of mealtime with a family member. We really wanted to try and focus on that, and emphasize the importance of the emotional component, because as my father, Dr. Greenson, always believed, as well as Jean Ayers, the mother of sensory integration, the sensory system is mediated by the emotional system. And so we basically took a lot of the, the oral motor elements of feeding and the sensory components that may be creating aversions and, and um, eating difficulties, and we said, okay, how can we really integrate a lot of what we know about the emotional development of a child and the experiences and relationships they have with their caregivers and even with the environment of mealtime, and how can we utilize that to really reorganize their perception of the experience, not just from a physical standpoint of the sensory, but especially the emotional piece. So that's kind of where it began. 
And then what we did for about a little under three years was we started utilizing the techniques and principles with a number of the children that were coming to our office for um, for social groups and other other you know sessions we were offering with floor time based occupational therapy or Greenspan floor time based speech and language pathology. Um, and we started seeing really nice results and the parents were learning techniques and taking it home and the kids were happy to be playing with the food and interacting around the table and sitting with their parents instead of being rushed or forced or whatever the previous experiences were. And we then realized that we you know part of what we've been moving towards as a whole clinic is are these intensive programs because we've seen much more drastic changes in short periods of time where when we've done what we call interval training. And a lot of the evidence about neuroplasticity supports that you know, targeting certain challenges or learning new skills over consolidated and intense periods of time gets better results than moderate training over long periods of time. So we really moved in that direction with a lot of our programs, especially the developmental programs we offer for social groups and, and, and um, interventions. And we basically then took food, food time into a 24 session um, kind of intensive uh, intervention program where we now can do it over a period of a few weeks or stretch it out if necessary. It's not ideal to do that. And again, we're, we're seeing these tremendous outcomes where on average children are you know, increasing on, on average each session, at least trying one new food, if not sometimes up to two new foods each session, whereas these are children who maybe had three or four foods they would only eat consistently for years. Um, so, we're, so it's been really nice to see these rapid changes, and we've, we're now offering it almost explicitly as an intensive intervention because that's where we've been getting the best results. Wow, that sounds fantastic. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can back up a little bit and can mm-hmm. you, because I know you've talked about this in the podcast we did before, where you said that the emotional system mediates the sensory system. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that so um, listeners can? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we know about neuroplasticity in the brain, how the brain wires itself, is that every experience we have Every physical experience we have, every even emotional experience we have, wires itself in two parts of our brain. We have kind of our sensory cortex, which perceives the sensory elements of the experience, such as you know sitting down and feeling a table underneath us, or in this case, putting food in our mouth and enjoying or not enjoying the sensation or taste of the food, right? I mean, the, the flavors and the taste might be cause an aversion or an attraction. Um, or it also might be the texture of the food or the difficulty of, or with ease with which we can chew the food or the swallowing of the food that might cause a gag reflex issue. Each of these kind of physical elements of feeding has an emotional repercussion. So it either leads to enjoyment or sometimes um, some aversion or displeasure. So, I mean, I can, I can even tell you from my own experience, as a kid, I was a tactile eater. I didn't like certain textures and, and cooked onions and certain cooked vegetables felt like worms in my mouth. And as a result, anytime I was faced with even thinking about putting some of that food in my mouth, it would create an emotional experience that was negative. It would be anxious or fearful or just one of aversion. So if we're not focusing on creating a positive mealtime environment, and part of that is the people we're doing it with, our caregivers, in addition to our positive perception of food itself, they were not addressing the full experience of the child. 
And unfortunately, then, yes, we may improve the chew patterns and the swallow patterns and the tactile sensitivity, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to reprogram the child's emotional perception of the experience. And as a result, once we've gone through the activities, it may not lead to long-term change. So we have to actually first start with the enjoyment of food and then work on expanding the repertoire. And so we would don't even get into tasting and trying new foods until the child is enjoying sitting at the table, until they're enjoying looking at or playing and touching some of the foods with their hands. And then once doing that with the parents at a table in an environment that's symptomatic of a mealtime environment, once we reprogram the perception of mealtime, as opposed to being rushed or forced or, or being given a reward that's external, now the experience of mealtime can be a positive one. Then we can begin to scaffold by trying new things and expanding the tactile and chewing repertoire of the child. Right. And I, I like the way you emphasize um, the full experience of the child. If we don't really attune to that child and understand their full experience, like you said, we're missing something and you may not see the results that you want, or you may see them only temporarily. And, exactly. um, yeah. And, and you said something else that, uh, popped out at me, which is you're working on their enjoyment of the food and <laughs> only then do you expand the repertoire. And, to me, that's DIR right there. It's joining the child um, and having fun, making it shared joy, and then the expansion and the challenge of, oh, let's see what else we could do, but always following their lead, so to speak. Absolutely. And actually, a big part of food time is letting them choose the new foods even. When we are expanding, they, we, we come up with a list and they get to choose the new foods they want to try, so they're in control of the experience. I mean, so much of food and seeding aversions that people don't appreciate. They think it really is a physical, motor, sensory issue, and it may start that way because children do develop you know, these initial, very early in life, feeding issues from some of the motor, sensory, and um, you know, uh, challenges. But what ends up happening is because kids need to eat, they end up eating, but it is something being put in their mouth oftentimes, especially the young child when they're being fed. And so, Unfortunately, a child is naturally going to feel out of control the more things are being done to them. And we need to help them feel more in control if we really want to have long-term change because the second that we stop force-feeding them or giving them a reward or even just putting them in an environment where they can handle some of the sensation, the second we're no longer there to support that, they're going to resort back to what's easy and comfortable. And when I say comfortable, I mean what's emotionally pleasurable and comfortable. And that isn't always pushing themselves to do new things unless they associate it trying new foods or eating a wide variety of foods as a positive experience. And that's how we generalize these things. Yeah, I mean, it's so common sense, yet so few people understand <laughs> it. It's really, it's really funny. Um, I know... Our son is, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but to, to us, he's like a visual eater. So he mm -hmm. may like certain things, but if he doesn't like the look of it, he's not even going to try it. So we've had to do certain things where, um, you know, once he tastes it, he loves it. He wants more and more. But but if it's something new, like um, he, he's a great eater and he eats a wide variety of foods. So we haven't had, like eating has been one of the least issues <laughs> with us but mm -hmm. i i know that you know it, it's really funny because if 
you know, if we try and force something that he doesn't want to do, like, forget about it. And then what are you going to have this power struggle? And then he's not going to eat the rest of the stuff. And then we end up exactly. creating a new problem that wasn't there. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 and I mean, you just touched on one of the big components. I mean, when you create power struggles and control issues, especially within family dynamics with parents or caregivers and child, it has a much more expansive negative, potentially negative effect on that child's experience than even that someone outside the family might might trigger. So, so it's really important that these experiences be not just be not just shared by the clinician and the child, but the parent be actively involved because. Ideally, this is taking this is be implemented at home, and that's actually the place where most of it's going to take place. Because even if you were to come to us three, four days a week, or five days a week, and do a meal each day, there's still at least two other meals you're doing at home with your caregiver. And these yeah. techniques need to be performed there, and the perception of the experience of fun and positivity and relaxation and enjoyment even though that may not always be the norm in the long run, <laughs> is still what we need to kind of trigger and reproduce in the short run. Right. And I mean, it's one of those things where there are so many different areas we could be working on and, and so many different issues that um, parents like me might have. And, you know, eating is something that's so essential because if your child isn't eating properly, they can get sick, they they can, you know, whatever, have a bunch of health problems. So it's, it's one of the more central things that we do with our children every single day. Like, you know, when we talk about floor time, do X number of 20 minute sessions a day and parents may or may not fit it in, but you always have to eat. So that's Absolutely. an area where you can really work on. I, I would think even this might be a good entry point for some families to even understand the DIR model because it's really hard for a lot of parents mm -hmm. to just wait and see, like you said, that full experience of the child. Are you respecting what they're feeling emotionally and what they're going through? And with food, that, that's something that you, you really can't force that. You can, you can think that you're forcing, you know, learning other things than that. But with food, you know, if the, if the kid throws up, then <laughs> that's right. that. Well, well. Well, actually, there's something even deeper there that my father strongly believed in that he was constantly talking about. He said there's really three functions that we have to perform in daily life. One of them is sleeping, one of them is going to the bathroom, and one of them is eating. And so if we take a behavioral approach to any of those and it becomes a negative or rigid experience, my father believed very strongly that there would be long-lasting and long-acting negative repercussions that would affect the child's overall emotional development because these are hardwired necessary components of our, of our human, human nature that we have to perform on a daily basis. Now, to that end that you were talking about with kind of understanding the basics of floor time, one of the things that we do, and it was interesting, the first few families we did intensives with on this, they were learning about floor time as they were learning about food time because floor time is built into it. And sometimes just to repair the relationship before you even get to the table, we're mm -hmm. doing pure floor time or greenspan floor time with the family so that we're really encouraging them to bond so that when they sit at the table, we might even be doing more floor time but at a dinner table. And now the parent and the child are connecting around having fun at the dinner table. The dinner table becomes a fun place. Just like if we were working on potty training and the child didn't want to be in the bathroom, the first step 
is to make the bathroom a non-scary, non-detrimental place. So doing, we, my father used to recommend parents to do floor time in bathrooms <laughs> and have fun in the bathroom and play in the bathtub. So all of a sudden, the bathroom wasn't a negative place. The same thing is with food time. We have to make the, the kitchen table, the dining room table, wherever you guys, the, the floor where you're having the picnic, wherever it is, a positive place within a positive nurturing you know, um, social relationship. And then we can get to the specifics of some of the eating. Right. And, and that's, that's the big key because you said nurturing. If, if you're always directing your child and you have to do this, you have to do this, that's not nurturing. And Mm-mm. the parent can feel, uh, the child can feel very threatened by it and, and you get this counter will happening. Um, so yeah, that, I think that must be, um, you know, we think of this as an intervention for a child, but really it, it's almost more for the parents, isn't it? And it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's for both. And, and certainly the, you know, it, it's kind of a, a horse or a horse or a carriage scenario or an egg or a chicken scenario. Sometimes, you know, we, we have to kind of work on both somewhat simultaneously, but oftentimes, you know, one does start improving a little faster than the other, and then it pulls the other along. So, so we really have to um, make sure we're addressing both ends of it. You know, it's not, we're not saying that, these issues are created by the parents. We're not saying it was necessarily the parents' fault the child has these issues, but we have to resolve some of the issues that came from some of the physiological differences the child might be experiencing that then created some tension in the relationship and power struggles. And so the parents are part of the solution, but we're not saying in any way they're part of the problem necessarily, unless they ignore the solution and just don't follow through on any of it. Right, right. <laughs> and that they, and that could be said that they, you know, just like not giving a child their medicine. <laughs> right. And, um, and there you just said it, like the individual differences, the physiological, physiological processes of the child or whatever it is that, that I in the DIR model, that respecting those individual differences of the child, which we might not understand because we don't experience the same thing. Um, I know mm-hmm. there's a, a boy that we know, even at the smell of apples, he literally will throw mm-hmm. up. So he's yeah, we've, around other children eating apples at, at the lunch table because it will affect him so aversely. Yeah, no, we've we've had a few kids like that. I mean, one kid it was pumpkin, another was anything that was soft like an apple sauce or a yogurt. Just looking at it or smelling it would cause him to start gagging. And I didn't kind of believe it at first because it was so hard for me to process that level of sensitivity, visual and and olfactory. And but nonetheless, he had that reaction. He would I I watched him one day start gagging, and it was not a self-induced gag; it was a true reflex. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, so we we really had to work through it, and some of it was finding other soft textured things that he could start manipulating his hands, or maybe even just looking at it first that wouldn't trigger that and then expanding into other textures because it was, it was the texture of the food that was really triggering him. For some kids, it's taste. Some kids, it's the, um, the firmness of the food and the, and the, nest, the, the need for chewing. So there's a, there's a lot of different components that could lead to that. I mean, I think the best, well, one way to think about it is, you know, would you eat a cockroach or whatever? <laughs> you know, you always right. hear about these chocolate-covered <laughs> insects and that. And, and a lot of us, we can't imagine putting something like that in our mouth. So imagine if your child is feeling that. Um, and, you know, two important things you said is 
it's a reflex. It's not self-induced. Yeah. Like this is a reflex. It's, it's not in their control. They're having this and something is triggering that reflex. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. It's no more. I mean, it's no more of a reflex than people who are afraid of heights, you know, not being able to stand on the edge of a building. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it, or, it's no less of a reflex. Right. I mean, it's, Yes, it is a fear of heights, but it is a physiological and emotional manifestation of that experience that they are having. So we can't just, again, keep forcing them up there and all of a sudden expect for them to change. We have to understand it and then gradually nurture it and support it to, to expand on it and help them really change their entire perception of it. And again, we work through the physiological elements as well because a lot of people who are afraid of heights have vestibular issues, right? They get vertigo. Well, we need to address their vestibular system, just like we're addressing these kids' oral tactile sensitivities and, and oral motor systems. Right. And um, let's talk a little bit about that because you have the therapists are trained not only in the Greenspan floor time approach, but also it's called the sequential oral sensory approach or SOS. Um, and can you talk a little bit about, about that? approach yeah i mean so so that's the approach where they got some of their additional training i mean they our head ot um giselle she had already had some training certainly in sensory integration but when it comes to the mouth it is one of the it's the second most nervous rich parts of the body so the 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 nerves and the nervous system in the mouth and the oral motor planning and sequencing kind of needs of the mouth are different than other parts of the body so understanding that was important for them in order to create kind of their understand develop their understanding of the program so that's what it really looked at it looked at true and swallow patterns it looked at oral tactile sensitivities it looked at other sensitivities like like gustatory sensitivities as well that might feed into some of the feeding and, and sensitivities. So they did the training. And again, that's where they kind of found some of the shortcomings of it because it really wasn't addressing those emotional pieces. They yeah. also, in the, in the training, it also looks further also at medically complex cases. Um, and then while we treat medically complex cases, kids with feeding tubes and, and other more complicated um, eating issues, while we work with that with food time, that's not really something we're talking about in this because that gets into a whole nother kind of more more complicated physiological um, component of feeding for some kids that's actually much, 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 much more complicated. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you've already answered this, but I'd love to highlight it anyway. Um, what would you say to maybe a behavior therapist who would be listening and saying, oh, well, he just talked about all the different components. Um, we have the trigger we have the reflex so if we just work on all these pieces we can change the behavior but i think you answered sure. that by saying it's it's really the emotional experience piece well, yeah but but again i mean i don't want to discount that what you just said either yes our goal is to change the behavior the only difference between behavioral interventions and kind of the, the green fan floor time approach with what my father created is not that our outcomes are that entirely different in terms of the goals of changing behavior. The difference is the techniques with which we use to address that is that ours are more comprehensive and holistic and really meet the child at their developmental level and work from the ground up, where the behaviorist is just trying to do work toward those outcomes by addressing the specific symptoms, right? We're trying to figure out what's at the core of it and work through those core issues, whereas a behaviorist is, is going to be looking at, okay, if this child's not eating, we have to get them to eat. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it's a different way of, of, of looking at it, but at the, at the end of the day, whether you're doing Greenspan floor time for a child who has some aggressive behaviors and communication deficits 
our goal is still to reduce the aggression and get them to communicate. <laughs> but right, it's just we have a slightly different trajectory in terms of getting there because we want to nurture the entire child because we see the child development is a holistic process. It involves all aspects of the child and the environment and the people around them. Whereas a behaviorist would say those things are irrelevant or we can't control for those. So we're only going to address the symptoms and try and fix those by basically creating a prompt and reward dependent system. Right, right. And certainly when you address the child holistically, like you said, um, you, with some programs, maybe you might see some results, but then in a different location or with different people or out in a restaurant or whatever, it, you wouldn't have the same results. Whereas with this program, you're making the eating, the social aspects, everything about it fun. So it will generalize more um, because Absolutely. It's, it's the whole emotional experience has changed. And, and, and that gets back to a term I used before about neuroplasticity. You know, the, all of the research on neuroplasticity suggests that a developmental approach creates a long-term neurological change, or behavior approaches create short-term neurological changes. And actually, Carnegie Mellon, um, I believe it was Carnegie Mellon, um, did was participated in some research and on on some ABA protocols, and they found initially rapid learning using the ABA protocols, but then they found long-term maladaptive learning and poor generalization because of what we're discussing, that these are not based on the principles of neuroplasticity. We're not really rewiring the brain, and we're just getting symptomatic outcomes that are temporary. And so if we really want holistic and long-term change, it has to be addressing the core issues that are leading to those symptoms. And, of course, um, continuing the process. So it, it, I imagine... Um, I guess I would ask you, have you noticed where you start to see really positive changes, but then the family gets really comfortable and then after a while they might just go back to the old ways and then you see some kids like, wait a second, eating's not fun again anymore because, right. you know, um, I, I think it's, Absolutely. I think that, that you kind of, when you, when you're training or coaching the parents about the method in general, hopefully you're you're getting them to really understand how it'll be more enjoyable and fun for them as well to continue it is and, and and what i will say too to that is that you will reach periods of time times of year times of transition times of increased stress and challenge and and, and like i mentioned transition for kids where they might start digging in again they might get more rigid they might get more kind of controlling themselves more defiant and sometimes it will play out with dietary changes or food and eating because that's one area kids try to regain control another one is bathroom another one is just rigid defiant behaviors and so it is important that we're constantly nurturing these principles and i can't say that that will always happen because it just won't no one can do this 100 percent of the time if we can do this stuff and make sure we're identifying what the child is experiencing 80 percent of the time we're ahead of the curve and so it's just really important we remember the principles. And most of the kids we've worked with, they'll have, you know, some temporary shifts or changes or what we call kind of momentary regressions where they might start digging in again. But again, it's just kind of a behavioral regression where really we just need to get back to the basics, start nurturing the emotional development and addressing some of the control issues that they might be experiencing from the rest of their life. And then we see, again, the positive outcomes. But, um, but, it, but again, some of the kids that we've gotten to a point as they've gotten older, they've become so mature that they're aware when these stressors are in their lives and they can actually tell their parents, Hey, you know, slow down here, <laughs> you know, like right. eating isn't as pleasurable anymore. 
because they're becoming not just better eaters, but more self-aware. And able to communicate that and advocate for Absolutely. themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I had kind of a silly question, um, but I'm guessing you might get this. Um, okay. <laughs> in, certain, in certain cultures, food is very important. And so I'm thinking mm-hmm. of, of the Baba or the Bubby or the whatever people call them, Nona, you know, all the, the grandmas, the mm-hmm. traditional cultural experience of eat my food, eat my Ukrainian grandmother used to say, yiste, yiste, like eat, eat more, eat right. more. And um, how, how, do we, <laughs> how do we approach that? Um, I guess, it, you know, just like with anything, it's about educating um, if, if it's a, a family that's offended by a child who, who won't eat the most treasured uh, food of their culture or something like that. Do you come across any of those kind of issues? You know, we, we do. And we come across it across the board, whether it's floor time and trying to get parents to spend time playing and interacting and connecting with their child around the child's interest or whether it is food time. You know, both of those these systems that kind of some people might claim are culturally, um, you know, not as uh, as supportive of a variety of cultures as necessary. And the thing that I've always said to critics who really, you know, are usually saying that from the outside without experiencing this stuff, I said, I've never met a parent or a parent from a different culture who doesn't want their child to be happy and well-nurtured, right? And communicative and social, right? Every parent has that as a goal. The only difference is then, okay, how adaptable are you going to then be as a parent? Because good problem solvers, regardless of culture, are adaptable. They're flexible. They're creative-minded. They try things when something doesn't work. And so if you frame it in a way that we have the same goals, but we may temporarily have to move away from what we think are the norms of our society or culture. And again, it's not that we're deviating from them entirely. It's that we have to be problem solvers and we have to be adaptable because we want our child to be adaptable and happy and communicative and social. Then from my experience, there's been very little resistance. But again, sometimes you do get a very rigid parent. Sometimes you do get a very rigid caregiver who doesn't want to make these changes. And I'll tell you, Nothing's going to change if we don't change sometimes as adults because forcing a child to do something is only going to usually lead to more issues. And a lot of the parents who haven't been able to make some of the positive adjustments that lead to long-term access of the culture they're desiring, well, the parents who haven't been able to do that, we aren't seeing the same success rates because they're not able to integrate the principles and they're not themselves showing adaptability, which in turn decreases the child's adaptability, which is ultimately one of the, regardless of culture, one of the number one things that every organism needs in order to survive. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I mean, um, every, every family is going to have a different level of susceptibility, I don't know if that's the right word, to um, how quickly they can... Um, adjust, absolutely. Yeah, adjust and... and and really, I'm thinking of the word, internalize this approach because I, right. I, it's so it comes it's, so it's, natural to some, and and and, and that's and I'll, you know, and, and I'll tell you, we take that into consideration. You know, we are well aware that there are certain families and certain dynamics that we need to be more gradual with, and that you know, a large family dinner with extended family and grandparents and cousins is might be the norm for certain cultures and communities, but it might be overwhelming to their child from a sensory level and causing stress and aversions. Well, 
that might be a hard thing to change at first. But then what we do is we practice these things outside of dinner time. You know, we're usually, we're in, and maybe we're finding, instead of trying to utilize the principles during dinner time where there is this intense focus on community and family and culture, we're doing these things during breakfast and lunch where it might not be as intense. And we're constantly finding ways for us ourselves as professionals to adjust to the family's needs so that we're not pushing a cookie cutter approach. This approach is meant to be adaptable as well. Yes, and, and you're individualizing the treatment plan not only to the needs of the child, but the needs of the family. And, and so, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard from so many parents that they just can't do family get togethers anymore because right. you know, other, other people don't understand, or if their child throws a tantrum at the dinner table and it's disruptive. And, and you know, it, you just get to that point where the parents just kind of give up and they're like, Ugh. You know, um, so I think that's really important. What you just talked about is, is we'll work on it outside of that situation and, and build it up gradually and, and maybe think about working towards that. But I can Mm -hmm. imagine it's also, it's not just the, the child stress, it's the parent stress as well, dealing with siblings or cousins or whatever, who may not be as understanding. Absolutely. And again, and, and, the, and the nice thing is we've definitely had anecdotal outcomes where kids and their parents are telling us that all of a sudden they are able to go to restaurants again with their extended family. They are able to have big family gatherings and go to parties and stuff because the child is more adaptable and flexible themselves because we in turn have been treating them in an adaptable and flexible way. You know, it goes back to my father's one of his number one mantras about everything in life for the most part, which is we have to give before we expect. If we want a child to be adaptable and flexible and tolerant, we have to be adaptable, flexible and tolerant, period. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Now, how do you approach um, the D in the DIR model? So uh, I imagine that when you're looking at a child who comes in for food time, you're certainly going to assess where are they developmentally and then the follow-up question, I guess, would be, how do you see this changing as the child's development progresses? So maybe they're operating in the early functional emotional developmental capacities, and then as they get through and they're more symbolic and they get into the higher capacities, um, I imagine the way you work with them through food time changes. Absolutely. You know, at the earlier stages, it's a lot more play, sensory motor activities, really bonding and connecting around physical sensations and emotional experiences and helping the child manipulate the food, but in a non-verbal or logical format. So they're not necessarily picking the food, but we might put a few things out in front of them and they get to use their gestural communication to, to do that. Um, also, it's important, again, to really be building up those developmental levels with the parents out inside and outside of the food time sessions. And as they become more verbal and meaningfully communicative and logical, then we add that in where the expectations might be around them talking more about the food and symbolizing elements of the food and playing with the food in, in the pretend world and communicating logically about it. So it can really be addressed at any level. I mean, certainly... At, a, at the earliest developmental stages, it really does look more like Greenspan floor time, right? Because you're doing a lot of play, you're doing a lot of regulatory experiences, you're really just trying to desensitize the child and help them become more connected and, and co-regulated with their caregiver. And I'll tell you, if a child is feeling safe and secure with their mother or father or caregiver, feeding is not a stressful experience. 
But if the child is already on high alert because they're an anxious or reactive child and they're not getting the co-regulated interactions and fun nurturing experiences from their caregiver, again, no program is going to work for them. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I was talking to Dr. Rick Solomon about the play project a, a little while ago, and he was bringing up that, um, Vygotsky, you know, zone of proximal development, the, the comfort zone and all of that. And you had alluded to that earlier that, uh, our kids want to be in that comfort zone. And mm-hmm. in order to bring them to that zone of proximal development, um, you want to, you know, really make it fun and, and all the stuff we talked about earlier. And, um, I, I guess, um, oh, now I forget where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, just working, working towards, um, um, having them experience things that are outside their comfort zone is, is what I was going to ask about. But, um, was there anything else you wanted to say about that? Like trying, Oh, I know what I, I, sorry. I remembered now. Uh, my son, like a lot of kids, you know, he will eat a lot of different things and certainly, and he loves going to restaurants cause we've always traveled, done little car trips and gone to a lot of restaurants. So I think for him, he enjoys it because it reminds him all the fun trips we've been on. So he, we have no problem when we go to restaurants, but at home, he tends to really want the same thing every single day for dinner. So mm-hmm. if we introduce something different, he's like, no, I want my sandwich or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where I was going with that. You know, he, he wants to be in that comfort zone. So even though it might be a child that isn't having uh, feeding issues per se, or, you know, um, like I imagine that the food time can certainly um, uh, inform that as well, like how to make it more playful to have different things and offer him more choices and um, plan Absolutely. Maybe some planning in advance. Hey. Oh, what do you think we'll have tonight? Absolutely. And helping him make constructive decisions about having something new. I mean, if, if part of the, you know, uh, the, the kind of intervention is, is getting him to make positive decisions for himself and planning ahead, well, he gets to plan his meals for the week. He gets to plan the meals for the family. I mean, I don't know too many kids who, you know, who, who are verbal and interactive and social who wouldn't love to tell their parents what to eat, <laughs> you know, yeah. As, but, but you set you set some expectations and rules, you know. Well, here are the here are the things we can't have the same thing each night, and you know we we can only have this this favorite food once, or these you know you can only choose one of these two favorite foods one night. The rest of the time it has to be you know a, you have a list of different things that they get to choose, but they're the one in control of it. They get to choose it, and all of a sudden, whether they like it or not, it was their choice versus us imposing it. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, our, our son never cared about Halloween or trick-or-treating. And this year, for the first time, it was great to see how much he enjoyed walking around with the neighborhood kids, following all the costumes, looking at everything, and getting his candy. He never cared about it before, which was great, because we didn't have to worry about him eating junky food. we just throw it out. But this year, oh my goodness, we've started a monster, uh. because now it's... <laughs> so from last October till now, every day, like... I want my dessert. I want my dessert because we were letting him have one Halloween candy every day. And so now, you know, at the beginning of dinner, he's like, I want my chocolate. <laughs> it's like, no, no, that's uh-huh. later. <laughs> and now we <laughs> put on a few pounds. So um, <laughs> I guess that's, um, that's where you brought up the boundaries. Like, okay, we can only have this so many times per week. And 
and letting him choose that instead of him just guessing, am I going to get it today or not? Absolutely. Yeah, there's clear-cut expectations. He can anticipate when these things are available, when they're not available. I mean, uh, again, and that, those are all kind of behavioral techniques that my father, Dr. Greenson, was very supportive of. You know, he, he believed in kind of organizing things in a way so kids can anticipate when they're going to get certain things they really enjoy, like a chocolate, as long as it's not done kind of repetitively as just a reward, but it is part of something regular. Unfortunately, actually, the more we make sweets into rewards, the more kids fiend after them, the more they crave them, the more we actually create addictions and perseverations by turning it into some object of value and creating an irregular reward schedule. Right. So having it regularly available on a Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, great. Now he knows the nights where he's going to have dessert and the nights he's not, and that's the way it is. It's just like computer time. It's instead of making a reward, make it into something that's regularly available, and now the child can anticipate when it's going to come versus seeking it all the time. Yeah, that's such a good point. That's that's great information. Um, so um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about food time? Um, I was just going to ask how um, if people want to, certainly they can come to, to you, but are there other mm-hmm. options, remote options to get food time? And then secondly, for professionals who maybe want to learn food time, do you have you branched out to training other professionals as well to deliver food time? Yeah, good question. So right now we're only offering food time in, in our two locations in um, in Northern Virginia, in Old Town, at one of our offices in Bethesda, Maryland, in our primary office. Um, we are, there is an online one and a half hour lecture that's introductory. And again, if you want to try some of the basic techniques, I want to, I'd recommend taking that. It's on stanleygreenspan.com. Um, and you can register for that. I think it's $29 and you get it for a whole month and you can go through it as many times as you want. Um, and then also for professionals, we are going to be hosting a very small hands-on training probably in the fall sometime in mid-September um, for just a very small group of professionals who'd like to learn floor time. And, um, you know, so we'll be doing that. And then I actually we may be doing one internationally um, in the fall as well. Um, but it will be a small you one said, at our office. You said in the floor time, but I think you meant food time, right? Food time, yes, food yeah. time. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll be. It, it'll be mid September, and if people would like to 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 find out about that, they can they can email us. We've already had some people just from the online lecture um, email us about getting trained, and and we'll be sending out some some information about that training um, that will be in mid September soon. And for that training, do you have requirements like um, you have to be an OT or a, a clinician or like, do you have any kind of um, registration? Um, yeah, there, there will be those. It will probably be mostly focused on occupational therapists and speech and language pathologists to start with, um, just because some of the knowledge base the, that's necessary to understand the, the chewing and swallow patterns as well as sensory stuff, even though we're going to go into it, they would need to have some basic knowledge in order to really learn as much as possible from this. Um, so it's something that we are going to probably be limiting at first, but we may find ways to open up in the long run. Excellent. So listeners, if you want to find out more, you can go to the website of the Floor Time Center. Um, it's thefloortimecenter.com. And there is, uh, through the links, you can find the information about food time 
And I will put links to all of these things that we're discussing at affectautism.com. You can search Food Time or Jake Greenspan, and it'll come up. And uh, thank you so much, Jake, for taking the time to discuss this with us. Yeah, really thank you for having me, Daria. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be on again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.